I'm the pastor of worship here, and I am uh, excited to be back in the pulpit, especially so soon after the last time I preached. I preached here two months ago, and so to be preaching again, this is fairly unusual for me. I'm more of a once a year kind of a preacher, which is often the case with worship pastors. You know, typically they... They let you preach once a year, usually in the summer. And uh, when you're done, they're like, oh, that was great, buddy. Now get back over there and sing, and we'll see you next year. Uh, then you can sort of relax for about a month, but then the wheels start turning because you've got to start working on your message for next summer. <laughs> and you're going to need that whole 11 months to get that 35 minutes of content together. I, that's a rhythm that works for me, 11 months to result in 35 minutes. So when they asked me to preach again after only two months, I was like, okay, but this, the message might only be seven minutes long, I gotta warn you. <laughs> I mean, I could stretch it to 10 if I talk slow. But they're like, no, seven minutes will be fine. The people will love you. You'll be very popular. <laughs> seven minutes is, is what people want. So I was actually talking to somebody here last week and I mentioned to them, like, yeah, I'm preaching next Sunday. And they're like, oh yeah, where? And I'm like, here. Here at Trigger Grove. <laughs> and they're like, didn't you just do that? And I'm like, I know how you feel. It's, I, I feel like this is a mistake. Like, like in Monopoly, like when you draw the yellow card and it's like bank error in your favor. You're preaching next week. Uh, so... We'll see how this goes, but uh, I, no, in all seriousness, I have to tell you that I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to do this. I love God's Word. I love to dig into God's Word. Uh, I love that this is a church that takes God's Word seriously and that we believe that God's Word has life-changing power and that it's worth studying. And I appreciate the confidence that is shown to me by the by Tim and the leadership of the church in letting me get up, up here and try to preach sometimes, it is not a responsibility that I take lightly. So I wouldn't want to even attempt it without committing it to the Lord in prayer, if you would pray with me for a moment. Father God, uh, you are good, and we thank you for revealing yourself through your word. We thank you for the power that there is in your word and we invite you to apply it to our hearts today as we hear it. Open up our ears. Open us up to receive what you have to say to us. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, guide the words that I say, and, and be with all of us. Fill us to overflow with, with your presence and your spirit today so that we can uh, draw closer to you and become more like our Lord Jesus through the study of your word today. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're in a series called Follow Me, focusing on the apostles of Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to be talking about Andrew, the apostle Andrew. It's a message that I have entitled, A Life That Counts. As followers of Jesus Christ, we want our lives to count for the kingdom. We don't want to just be marking off days on a calendar until we can die and go to heaven. God has us here, and we believe that he has us here for a reason, and 
We want to know that we are being used for his purposes while we're here, to advance his cause, to help build his kingdom on earth while we have breath. We want our lives to count for the kingdom, don't we? But there's a problem. Sometimes we feel like we can't do that because we don't have enough. We don't have enough time. Schedule is too busy can't serve the Lord right now. We don't have enough talent. I'm not good at what I see other people doing around here. Obviously, God can't use me. Or we don't have enough treasure. Finances are tight right now. I I, I don't have much to give. Whatever it is, we think that we don't have enough of something to make any real difference. So we decide to wait a little bit until we do have enough. And what ends up happening is that we end up giving nothing. Whether it's we're not tithing to the church, we're not serving in any ministries with any regularity, or we're not trying to share the gospel with people outside of the church, we're not finding some way to contribute to the work of the Lord. And if that's the case, then we are a little bit like Sisyphus. Remember Sisyphus? Maybe you learned about him in school. He was... In Greek mythology, Sisyphus was the guy who was condemned to rolling a boulder uphill for all of eternity. But every time before he got to the top, it would slip away from him and roll back down to the bottom. He'd have to go back down there and start all over again. And if we're not serving the Lord in some way, then our lives are like that. Every day we're just putting in the effort to get through the day. Because life takes effort. It's a struggle. We get through the day, and then when we wake up the next day, the boulder's back at the bottom of the hill. We didn't do anything that made it to the top, anything with any kind of transcendent, eternal value to it. We're just rolling rolling a boulder uphill. And that, that can be true for us as Christians, even if we're even if we're, we believe in the promise of heaven and we're looking forward to that day when we see Christ face to face and we get to spend all of eternity with him, that might be what our hearts are set on, but our day-to-day reality looks a lot more like Sisyphus. We're just rolling a boulder up a hill. We gotta do that until we get called to heaven. But that's no way to live. That's not how we wanna live, and that's not what God has for us. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. He has plans to use us for his glory. He has good works prepared for us to do, even if we don't know how we can possibly accomplish them. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture this morning that shows us how God works through his people to accomplish his purposes, even when they don't have enough. That's what this story is about. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Gospel of John, chapter 6. We're going to look at a story known as the feeding of the 5,000. Pastor Phil talked about this story a little bit a couple weeks ago when he preached on the Apostle Philip. This morning we're going to look at that story from a slightly different angle and focus on the 
seemingly small but actually very significant role that Andrew played in this story. Andrew was the brother of Simon Peter. Not only does it tell us that here, but pretty much every time they introduce Andrew in all of the Gospels, they tell you that he was the brother of Simon Peter. They really want you to know that. Um, But you'll notice also that when they introduce Simon Peter, they don't tell you that he's the brother of Andrew. This might suggest that Andrew was the younger brother. Um, And it tells us back in the first chapter of the Gospel of John that Andrew was actually the first of the apostles to encounter and start following Jesus. So he has become known throughout church history as the first called. Kind of a cool fact about Andrew. And it says that one of the first things he did after he became a follower of Jesus Christ is he went and he found his older brother, Simon, and said, look, we have found the Messiah. You've got to come meet him. And it says he brought him to Jesus. So Andrew was the point of connection between Simon, who became Simon Peter, and Jesus. In fact, he was the point of connection for a few different people throughout the Gospels because he, he sort of had this ministry of connection. That was his thing. He would connect people to Jesus. And he does that in this story that we're going to look at today, so let's keep an eye out for that as we read it. Let's read verses 1 through 14. John 6, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Amen. Amen. I want to point out three things about this story that show us how God works through his people to accomplish his purposes even when they don't have enough. 
It starts with this, the resources are insufficient. That's the basic problem of the story. The resources are insufficient. There's this huge crowd of people that need to be fed, and there's simply not enough food. The text says that it was 5,000 men. But if you include the people that were traveling with them, it is... uh, probably, you know, families with multiple kids, so you you include all the women and children and everybody together, it's reasonable to assume that there was at least twice that many people. There might have been between 15 or even 20,000 people there, which is a huge crowd. If you're having a hard time picturing a crowd that size, think of, if you've ever been to a, have you ever been to a Kane County Cougars game? How many people? I'm sure some people. Yes. King County Cougars. Go Cougs. They play over at the Northwestern Medicine Field, which I looked this up. It holds 10,923 people. So you need two of those. So imagine, okay, you're at a Cougars game. It's packed. Every seat is filled, and everybody has one person sitting on their lap, which... Aside from the fact that that's going to be a pretty weird night at, at the Cougars, that doesn't usually happen. But it gives you some idea of the massive amount of people that are following Jesus and his little band of followers there, his little band of disciples. So Jesus says to his disciples, where are we going to buy bread to feed all these people? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is you can't do it. You, there's no earthly way to do it. And he addressed this question specifically to Philip, perhaps because he knew what kind of answer he was going to get from Philip. Because as Pastor Phil pointed out a couple weeks ago, Philip was a numbers guy, very practical. So he does some quick calculations, and he comes to the conclusion that even if they had 200 denarii, they couldn't do it. Denarius is about a day's wage. So he's basically saying, even if we had six months' wages, which, by the way, we don't because we all quit our jobs to follow you, but even if we did, we would not be able to buy enough bread to solve this problem. The problem, from an earthly perspective, is unsolvable because the resources are insufficient. And that's pretty much where Philip leaves it. He just says, we don't have have it, kind of shrugs, and then he's done. But here's where our boy Andrew comes into the story. He doesn't stop where Philip did. He doesn't just shrug his shoulders and give up. He decides he's going to look around and he's going to see if he can find something, like anything. There's got to be something here that might be useful. And so he finds this kid with a basket, like a picnic basket, five loaves of bread who fishes in there. Now, if, if Philip had seen that kid and looked in that basket, we don't know if that happened. I'm kind of speculating here. But you can imagine Philip, Mr. Numbers, looking in the basket, being like, all right, what do you got there? Five loaves of bread. Okay, five loaves of bread. And we got 20,000 people. That's one loaf of bread per 4,000 people, 20 slices per loaf. 
That means one slice of bread has to feed 200 people. Have you ever tried to cut up a slice of bread into 200 pieces? You would need a pair of tweezers and a magnifying glass to eat that piece of bread. It wouldn't even be worth doing. Resources are definitely insufficient here. And not only would Philip have known that, but Andrew could see that too. And you can tell that because he's a little self-conscious about the offering even as he's bringing it. He's like, here's the kid, five loaves, two fishes, but what is that for so many? I mean, it's like obviously not enough. But it's something. And if anybody could do something with it, it would be Jesus. Because we've seen Jesus already turn water into wine. We've seen Jesus heal the sick. We've seen Jesus tell the invalid to pick up his mat and walk. So if anybody could somehow stretch this out and make this work, it's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Andrew brings the kid, and he does his ministry of connection, he brings the kid, and he brings it almost as an offering. He offers it to the Lord Jesus. What can you do with this, Jesus? And here's what happens. The offering is multiplied. The resources are insufficient, but the offering is multiplied. Notice how Jesus responds to this offering of insufficient resources. He doesn't seem offended. He's not upset. He doesn't even express disappointment, like, come on, man, five loaves, two fishes. What are we going to do with that? That's not enough. Now go out there and get some food. He doesn't say that. He just says, have the people sit down. It's time to eat. And he proceeds to do what he had been planning to do the whole time. We know that because it says it in verse 6. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus was always planning on feeding these people. And he was going to have to do it miraculously because there wasn't enough food. So Jesus, being God in human form, he could have said, let there be bread, and then loaves would just spring up out of the earth. Or he could have snapped his fingers and fish just would have fallen from the sky and they could scoop them up with baskets. You know, something really impressive to like display his power because he had the power to do that, but he didn't do it that way. What did he do? He turned to his disciples and he said, where are we going to get bread for these people? Where are we? He made it an us thing. He invited his disciples to participate in this process. It kind of reminds me of like when, when my kids were little and we would take them camping and we'd be making the campfire and I'm there setting up the logs and if you're ever in this situation if you have little kids and you're setting up a campfire what do you say to them? Go get me some sticks. We need kindling. Right? This, here's something you can do. Go get me some sticks. Sticks. 
And when they come back, they go around, they forage around, and they come back with a little handful of twigs. And they're like, how about this? And you're like, that's great. Let's put them right there in the middle. That's what we need. Why do you have them do that? Partly it's because you need the sticks, because it works for kindling. But it's a lot more than that, isn't it? Partly it's because you want them to learn. It's a learning experience for them. You want them to have, take responsibility and learn the different aspects of making a fire. But it's more than that even. You do it, maybe the most important part, it's a relational thing. It's a bonding thing. You want them to share this with you. You want them to come away from this saying, I helped daddy or mommy to do this. We did this together. I played a role in this. They feel connected to you. You feel connected to them. So when they bring you the little handful of sticks, you're like, good job. That's perfect. That's just what we need. And they are beaming up at you and they're like, okay, great. I'm so, I feel so great about this. And then even though those sticks that they brought you you can't really make a fire out of those. I mean, those are just, if you lit just the sticks, it burns for two minutes and it's gone. The sticks in and of themselves are insufficient resources. But the thing is, you're going to combine that little insufficient offering with what you've got. Because you've got the, uh, the logs and the matches and the lighter fluid and like blowtorch or whatever it is you're going to use to start up this fire, you've got like immense resources. And you're going to take their little offering, you're going to multiply it and make it part of your resources and together you will have made a fire. And this is a snapshot of how the Lord works through his people. He invites us to be part of what he's doing and he's going to take the little handful of sticks that we bring to him and he's going to say, that's great. I'm going to receive that offering and I'm going to combine it with my infinite resources and we're going to get the job done. We're going to achieve my purposes. Jesus takes what has been brought to him. He multiplies the offering. And the third thing is that the result is God-glorifying. It is God-glorifying. Notice in, in verse 14, it says, when people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. In the text here, in, in my version, I got the ESV here, it doesn't say a prophet. It says the prophet with capital P. Because there, there was an Old Testament prophecy from the book of, of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, where God said to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the people were expecting this prophet to be sent from God, essentially another Moses to come along and lead them the great and final prophet, the Messiah. And when they saw this miracle, they said, oh, this, this is the guy. This seems like the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for, the one sent from God. 
And not everybody in the crowd had been saying that up to that point. It says back in verse 2, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. It doesn't say that the entire crowd of people was following him because they believed that he was the Savior sent from God. The word become flesh. In a crowd that size, there would have been people there who were just there because they saw him healing people. And they said to themselves, hey, I don't have health care. I think I'll follow that guy. He seems like a good man to know. I don't know where he gets that power, but who cares? Let's stick with him, and he'll take care of us. But now they see this miracle, and something about it makes them say, this is the one sent from God. Could it be not just the display of power in that miracle, but kind of the benevolent nature of it? The fact that it was power exerted on their behalf, an expression of care to take care of their needs. There was like a a, a love and a concern that came across in that miracle that made it feel like a God thing, like like it displayed the character of God. And so they began to acknowledge the deity of Christ and to glorify God. And people, even through that miracle, came to know Christ as their Savior. The resources were insufficient, but the offering was multiplied, and the result was God glorifying. This is how God works through his people. He invites us to be part of the process of what he's doing. And we bring him our little handful of sticks and he combines it with his resources to multiply it in ways that you couldn't even possibly have imagined. I mean, the results of this were awe-inspiring. He took an offering of food that was only enough for maybe 20 people and he used it to feed 20,000 people and there were 12 baskets left over afterwards. It was more than enough. That is the God that we serve. So if you're here this morning and you're not serving God right now because you think you don't have enough, I'm here to tell you that you're right. You don't have enough. I don't have enough. None of us have enough to make an actual difference for the kingdom because the needs of the kingdom are overwhelming and the obstacles and opposition to the kingdom in this world are just intensifying and those, those are how, how can you even scratch the surface of it we don't have enough but the good news is you don't have to have enough God's not asking any of us to have enough because he is enough. He's only asking us to bring whatever insufficient resources we can find to him so that we can be used by him and be part of the process of what he is going to do and that he has always planned on meeting the needs of his people. He's going to take our little offering 
He's going to multiply it. So if you're not tithing right now, for example, because things are tight, that's okay. Find, find a dollar, one cash dollar, and drop it in that box on the way out. Just do that every week. It might not seem like much. What difference does a dollar make today? But God will take that dollar and use it, and the results will be multiplied for the glory of God. Or if you're not serving because you got a lot going on, calendar is very full. I can't find hours in my week to carve out. Okay, well, you don't have to com commit to multiple hours per week. Find a little nugget of time, a couple hours, like once a month, to give yourself to specifically kingdom-related work. And it might not be much, but God's going to use it. He's going to multiply it for the kingdom. For those of you who are serving, who are serving in any capacity, I want to encourage you to trust that God is multiplying that ministry that you're doing, and he's using it in ways that you might not even know about. We can get discouraged sometimes because we, we don't see all the fruit of our ministry. We're just kind of plugging away at something. It doesn't really seem like it's producing a lot of fruit, especially we love to compare ourselves to other people, like what I'm doing for the Lord isn't as important as what he's doing or she's doing. I don't think I'm making a difference. But the thing is, you don't see the difference that you're making sometimes during this life. You might not get to see all that until we are in glory and we see all that God has done with what we've brought to him unfold. We'll see this immense, beautiful tapestry of work that he did. But we don't see it now. I think of C.S. Lewis the author, I'm sure a lot of you know who C.S. Lewis is. The guy that wrote Chronicles of Narnia. He was a British author. He was a professor at Oxford and Cambridge universities. Real smart guy, real intellectual type of person. Not a preacher, not an evangelist. He wouldn't hold these big tent meetings and preach fiery sermons that... that uh, you know, started revivals or anything. By all accounts, he was a fairly low-key, reserved sort of person. But in the early 1940s, he was invited to give a series of 15-minute lectures on the radio, on BBC radio, dealing with the core beliefs of the Christian faith. He agreed to do this. I have heard some of these recordings. The content is very strong, but his, his delivery was unassuming, kind of dry, you might say a little bit stuffy, you might fall asleep listening to it, not the kind of thing that would set the world aflame and start a revival, but it was well received, and the text of those lectures was eventually compiled into a book called Mere Christianity. It was published in 1952. And then later, in the year 1997, 
I bought a copy of that book, and I got saved while reading it. Yeah. Praise God. Praise God. I bought it just as part of a spiritual search that I was on because of circumstances in my life. I've, I've shared my testimony here, but this was, this was a pivotal moment. I bought this book, and I'm reading it, and then it's somewhere in the middle of it, there's this famous argument that he makes, but Jesus was either liar, lunatic, or Lord. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that. But it was reading that passage, it was like God turned this light on inside of me and I just got it. And I just, in that moment, was transformed into a person who now believed that Jesus Christ was Lord and had died for my sins. I wonder if C.S. Lewis had any inkling when he agreed to do that series of short lectures on the BBC Could he possibly have dreamed that 50 years later, a printed copy of those lectures would be in the hands of some punk kid from suburban Chicago? And while he was reading it, God would use that to completely change his life and transform his eternal destiny and save the kid. I don't think C.S. Lewis saw himself as a global evangelist like Billy Graham. By the way, Billy Graham was like operating at the same time. So he would have known who Billy Graham was. But C.S. Lewis is like, I'm I'm no Billy Graham. You know, his gifts were seemingly more modest and cerebral than that. But he took what he had at his disposal, he put it out there, he offered it up to the Lord, And the Lord multiplied it far beyond what C.S. Lewis could ever seen even during his earthly life. Because I got saved by reading that like 35 years after the guy went to heaven already. I never got a chance to meet Mr. C.S. Lewis and thank him for his work. But I will. I will. I have a feeling that if I thank him for that, He's not going to receive any of that glory. He's going to give it all to God, all the glory to God. Do you want your life to count for the kingdom? Start by letting go of the idea that you have to have enough or that you have to be enough to make a difference. You don't have to have a million dollars to give in order for your contribution to make a difference. You don't have to drop everything, quit your job, and go into full-time vocational ministry in order for your service to make a difference and to count. You don't have to be up on a platform with a microphone in order for your gifts and abilities to make a difference. You don't have to be a a world-class evangelist like Billy Graham for your sharing of the gospel to make a difference, for that to be a seed that impacts somebody in ways you might not even see immediately. You don't have to have enough or to be enough. You just have to do what Andrew did. You have to look around you and see whatever little thing you can find, whatever is at hand for you right now. And you have to say, as insufficient as that is, perhaps desperately inadequate. 
but you still have to bring that and offer that to the Lord. He will multiply the offering. He will make it count in ways beyond what you could have imagined, and ultimately, he will receive all the glory. Amen?